0: This is the Knowledge Leaders Podcast with Todd Hand.
1: Hi, I'm Todd Hand and really excited to talk to Jamie Candy, CEO at Edmentum. Jamie, welcome.
0: Well, thank you for having me, Todd. I'm happy to be here.
1: I am really excited to have you as a guest and I'm going to start with how does a preschool teacher become CEO of an important ed tech company?
0: Uh, that 's a great question. Well, well, thanks for the question, and, and i 'm super excited to talk to you today. So how does that happen? Well, I grew up amongst a family of educators. M- many people in my family uh, were educators, and from a very young age, I wanted to be a teacher and I worked my way through uh, the teaching program at the University of Wisconsin and I, I was a preschool teacher during that time frame and got into student teaching and One of the things that I realized about myself is that I, as I was in the classroom, I was really curious and concerned about what was going on outside of the classroom, and so said differently, I really thought that my path at the time should be to go back and change my major to political science pre-law, and I really wanted to go into education policy and affect change at a state and federal level. So I did that. I changed my major, and I graduated with a degree in political science and was on my way to law school and actually fell into a banking internship because I needed the money at the time to fund law school. And through that internship, I found a love for uh, leadership and building great companies. And I had a chance to work at a few financial services organizations. I got to be part of a startup early on. And over the years, found that there was this new thing called education technology happening particularly in the Twin Cities here in Minnesota. And I had an opportunity to join Plato Learning and really combine my love for teaching and lifelong learning with my love for building organizations and running companies. And so here I am today at Mentum is Plato Learning Rebranded. And I get the great opportunity to um, leverage my, like I said, my joy and love for the profession of teaching um, while building a great education company.
1: Does that early experience and, and studies in elementary education, how does that help you today?
0: Well, I think for one, uh, I do understand uh, what teachers go through. Uh, teachers in this country and abroad have one of the hardest jobs uh, I think that there is. and. Um, I think in a lot of cases undervalued, and the work that they do is incredible because they're taking young minds and they're developing those young minds into great people, great humans. And so I have an understanding of what it's like to be in the classroom, uh, and I have an understanding of what teachers go through to develop themselves and, and how they develop kids. And so as you take all of that knowledge and understanding and obviously the ongoing lifelong professional development that I put myself through to continue to understand our practice, that helps us, and it helps me lead momentum in the areas of our strategy development, our programs, and our technology to make sure that at the heart of everything that we do, it's putting the teacher in the center of what we call personalized instruction, and at the center of education technology. So, you know, that experience and really understanding how teachers teach, standing in front of 25 to 35 kids, uh, and being able to build technology tools, instructional tools that supports that process and that practice, I think, is a great combination.
1: And this is your second stint at Edmentum after exiting Westar, right?
0: Yes, it is. I was with the organization. So like I said, when I started, it was actually early 2005. Uh, at the time, we were still Plato Learning. Worked my way through the organization for about eight and a half years. Uh, in 2013, at the time, I was Chief Operating Officer at Plato Learning. Uh, we had just rebranded to Edmentum. And I had an opportunity to go to Questar Assessment, uh, also here in Minnesota, and really see another side of the education space, uh, being able to work in uh, standardized testing, state-based testing, and go there as CEO. So it was my first opportunity to be CEO uh, of an education company, and I I went to that organization and uh, had a great team, and and we built a great strategy and had an opportunity to run uh, Questar for just about four years. Uh, and then found a new home for Questar with ETF uh, about a year and a half ago. And after that, had the opportunity actually in working with you and your team to come back to Adventum as CEO. So I've been back for about 15 months. Uh, So I call it my second tour of duty, and I'm absolutely delighted to be back.
1: What's the big goal? What's the big thing that you're working on now at Adventum?
0: So the single most important thing, uh, and, and it combines with really what our ultimate goal is, is leveraging adaptive technology to enable educators across this country, uh, and and quite frankly, globally, to personalize instruction for every student. And so what that means, and and the way that we define, and there's a lot of buzzwords and different folks who have different perspectives, uh, and a lot of debate around what is personalized learning. For us, personalized learning is providing teachers the tools, the resources, and the support to put every child, every student in that classroom at the center of learning. And that's really hard to do when you have students who are at all different levels of their learning journey. And great teachers, many teachers have been personalizing instruction forever. This is not a new thing. But what we see in the technology and the tools and in the adaptive instruction that we have developed and continue to develop is that we can empower teachers to affect all kids in their classroom, not just a handful of kids, by leveraging our tools. So that is the biggest goal that we have. It is about learning, and it is about instruction. And what will come from great instruction and a stronger case for learning uh, is, is more student growth, is proficiency in really addressing and serving the whole child. So it's it's more to us than just academic learning. It is really about the whole student, the whole child, and combining both academic tools, instruction, and curriculum resources with life skills, instruction, and resources. So we're really focused on what we call whole student, student-centered programs uh, and services and really putting our educators at the heart of those programs and services enabling them to do what they do best.
1: Are you just in K-12 or are you, do you also have higher ed and, or aspirations to get into higher ed?
0: We do have uh, higher ed, really where we focus uh, in what we would call the adult learning space. Uh, The adult education space is around workforce development uh, and adult basic education. So we are very focused on serving adult learners who either are pursuing their GED or equivalent, have the opportunity to go back to school and develop themselves Uh, for for careers that they're interested in. So we're very focused on workforce development certification programs and adult basic education. And we do do some programs at the community college level, uh, as well as a growing practice where we are working with districts and community colleges across the country to put their programs together and our tools so that we can offer dual enrollment and expansive certification programs.
1: I heard you as a panelist at the Capitol Roundtable in July, and your panel was talking about pathways to jobs. And you asked the question, how do we educate kids for jobs we don't know will exist in the future? Um, How do we do that?
0: You know, there's a lot of uh, folks and organizations working on this particular challenge. What we're doing here and, and what our team has focused on and will continue to focus on is working with labor and working with industry and talking to, particularly in the states where we do the most work talking to the larger organizations, the industries that are prevalent in those particular areas, about what do they think they're going to need over the next 10, 15, 20 years. And so we've had a lot of panels. We've had a lot of thoughtful discussions with various organizations uh, across the country. And we started to create a list of kind of future jobs, and we call it Future Jobs Ready. And what we're doing now is looking at, okay, what are the skills and the competencies and really the interests that students need to have to work their way into those professions. And so we know that, that you know, anything in the STEM careers are, are growing, there's a lot of different types of uh, positions and professions that are evolving. One of the things that we're seeing happen, you know, data scientists mean something very different depending on you know, the part of the country that you're in. And so how do we develop? First, how do we gauge whether or not a student is interested in that kind of profession? So we are working on some tools in that area. And then how do we expose them to the types of skills and competencies that they'll need to develop? And then how do we provide that kind of instruction and curriculum resources to educators who may not know that these types of jobs are on the horizon? So it really is what I would call a community effort. It is labor, it's industry, it's K-12, it's higher ed, all working together and then companies like Adventum and others who have a vested interest in helping develop these skills, working with those various constituents to build out these future pathways.
1: It feels like as an industry, we're just scratching the surface on how to drive insight from big data. What, what are what are you and your team doing at Adventum around this?
0: Yeah, so one of the things that we, we firmly believe in as it relates to big data is there is not going to be just one organization uh, that solves this challenge. And you're not districts, higher ed institutions are not gonna to go to one provider and say, you know, give me all of this big data on my students and on my teachers and, and all the information that we need to measure success and growth. It's not gonna happen. What we believe can happen, and we're seeing a lot of good progress in this area, is we as, and I'm gonna speak right now to the education technology community, we as an ed tech community need to come together and we need to work together around standardization of our data sets. And if we do that effectively, we are, we are serving our students and teachers much better than trying to do it alone. So for us, we think about what is in the best interest of the student and what is in the best interest of the educator, and there are disparate sets of data, and there are many different outcomes that educators and administrators are pursuing on a daily basis, and if we as organizations across this industry can work together, whether it's Project Unicorn or a common set of data standards, that we can all agree to work within those constructs in terms of how we design our assessments, our measurement tools, the metadata behind those. These are the kinds of things that are gonna really help our districts and our higher ed institutions get the kind of big data analysis that they're looking for. And so that's what we're focused on, is building and collaborating with other organizations, working with various nonprofits uh, and groups that are trying to build more standardization into education data. And we are signing up for any and all of those initiatives because we think the right thing to do is to have companies come together to work together for, for, for what's in the best interest of students and teachers.
1: And how are those initiatives coming along? Is it really possible to have that type of collaboration?
0: You know, I think what you're seeing now, uh, particularly as you start to see more unified rostering of student data, there's third-party organizations and initiatives that have popped up. That are really at no cost to an LEA or a higher institution, which is a good thing because what's happening is districts, community colleges, colleges, universities are able to demand a more unified data set, which in essence forces various companies to work together as partners. So while I would like to see us proactively work together, I think the industry shifting and some of these third-party tools coming in are creating the kind of market demand that will really force any provider who wants to participate in the market to start to sign up for some of these standards. So I don't really care how we get there. I think the right thing to do is for us to have uh, a standard set of data. And so to, to get us to work together, whether proactively or you know through various other efforts um, throughout the market, I think is a good thing. And, and really the outcome to all of this is we wanna be able to show longitudinal growth of a student. So when you're a kindergartner, and by the time you get to 12th grade, all of the data that is collected on you in your learning journey, your districts, your parents, your community, your future employers, there should be a way to take that data, both project where you're gonna go in your learning journey when you're, when you're a younger student, and then what you've accomplished as an older student. That's what this is really all about. It's, it's really about being able to predict growth, predict competency, predict skills, um, and then allow a student to take control, we call this the agency, of learning, take control of the path that they're going to go and have educators, administrators, parents, and the community along the way able to support that student because you can actually see this learning journey through the various data sets coming together to create a complete picture. So that, that is the ultimate goal. That's the way that we see big data is really helping that learning journey at a very individualized basis, and that could also be extended into educator effectiveness. So every educator is on a lifelong journey, journey to develop themselves, and that professional development and all of the data that's collected around how that educator spends their career developing themselves could also help influence how we develop, you know, the great future administrators and educators of tomorrow.
1: Is there risk in pigeonholing students? So, or is there flexibility built in? Because you know that some students are on one path and they have an epiphany when they're 14 and they go in another direction. So is there flexibility built into that profile?
0: Absolutely. So when we talk about what we talk a lot about here and and lots of organizations uh, and thought leaders are talking about this, and this is really that that whole child, that whole student development, that student centered, which is more than just standards. It's more than curriculum standards. It's more than what a state says a student should or shouldn't know to graduate high school and go on to be college or career ready and or career ready. It is about creating a profile and the opportunities for students to understand what they're good at, to see what is potentially for out there for them in terms of how they develop themselves, and then creating a pathway to do that. And, and historically, our education system is really about putting you through the courses, and the stand setting up a set of standards, curriculum standards, that gets you to a place where we say you're ready to graduate high school and go on to what you're going to do next.
1: Right. There's like what one obstacle do, course that they have to get through that's and right. that's that's the ending. That's right. Right.
0: That's right. And and so what you're seeing now and, and a lot of the work that we're doing early on um, is a lot of neuroscience behind life skills, executive function, social emotional learning, how do you gauge what gets a student excited, a child excited, and then how do you help create a pathway through them, which is really for life, that includes academic learning, but also develops their life skills, as well as helps them see what the world can offer them through the various things that they like, what they're interested in, and then subsequently what they're good at. So there's absolutely a pathway to do that, and and we're working on it, and I know many other organizations are as well, and I think it's a great thing for kids if this can
1: happen, don't you want to go back to like first grade and go through school all again and have all of these great things happen instead of having the same obstacle course for every single student?
0: I do. And you know, I, I can't do that. And obviously you can't do that. But what I feel very grateful for is that I have two young children, uh, both of which have just started are uh, in their early uh, elementary grades. And so they are going to be able to benefit from this work. Uh, and that excites me because I can live vicariously through them.
1: My son asked me a question the other day and he said, dad, I hope you don't get mad at me. He's in 11th grade. And he said, look, I was supposed to read this book over the summer and I didn't. I went out on the internet and I read a bunch of reviews and I read a bunch of arguments and I watched a bunch of things on YouTube. And then I went over here and he, he listed five or six sources where he collected the data and collected the content And he said, so if they test me, I'm ready. But I just couldn't sit down and read the book. I hope you're not mad. And I said, no, I'm not mad at all. At at the age of 16, I know he knows how to read and he's a 4.0 student. And and it's his initiative to go out on his own and go to many different sources and learn the best way he has figured out how to learn at the age of 16. Now, I wouldn't say it was okay for a third grader, but at the age of 16, he knows how to read and, but he took it upon himself and he was resourceful to collect the content. Now he still has to do well in the test and he has to do it. But that to me seemed like the new way that people are learning instead of just taking a class and sitting in a seat and, and, and going through the same optical course that to have some flexibility to get the content and, and get the information and get the arguments on their own.
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, what your son demonstrated there are the kinds of life skills that he will need uh, and that he has developed to be successful in life. And it's not just about academic learning. It's about exactly what you just said. He, he has created adaptability within himself. He has created a curiosity. Uh, he has created inquiry uh, and he's figuring out ways to be successful that isn't just the stated pathway that was put in front of him. Uh, and I think that's exciting. And I think you know technology is helping us do these kinds of things more and more. Technology can be overwhelming, and technology is definitely not an end-all, be-all. But what it does allow is for different pathways. Uh, And that's what I get really excited about. And I think it's great that your son is is finding his way as well.
1: I know you travel a lot, and I know you go out into districts, and you're talking with superintendents and teachers. What are you seeing, or what do you think are some underreported stories when it comes to K-12 and ed tech and the industry that you're in?
0: That's a great question. So the first one that I see, and and I've been, I try to get out with our customers uh, and talk with thought leaders and, and educators as much as possible. And I am out all of the time. And there's, there's something that I'm seeing that's really interesting. And I think a really great thing for the country. And that is, you know, it doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on as it relates to immigration reform. Um, my, my point to bringing this up is, you know, with us, uh, With Every Student Succeeds Act, uh, one of the things that was called out very specifically is how we serve in our schools across the country, english language learners. And I think states, SEAs and LEAs have done a really nice job pulling together kind of a new strategy for how uh, English-language learners are supported and developed through their learning journey. And I can give you examples that I'm seeing that I'm not seeing in the media. And so, you know, this is maybe a call out for folks to start paying attention to this but I've seen some districts and states, particularly in California, Florida, Arizona, where not just our our English language learners uh, who are newer to this country um, being put through what I would call much more innovative programming around dual instruction and and supporting native language learning, academic learning, while those, those children are also learning English. What I'm also seeing is a lot more support around social emotional learning and cultural awareness and i've seen some various programs that districts are implementing where the child is being put through like what does a day in the life of an american school actually look like like what are all these cultural norms that we take for granted in this country but somebody newer to the country is is really going to struggle and be confused by and in essence that will affect their ability to learn our language and it'll affect their ability uh, to learn academically and so really approaching that whole child uh, I think is just a tremendous trend and transition that I'm seeing across the country and That's not something I, I hear a lot of discussion and I see a lot of news coverage around You know the ESSA implications on English English learners associated with funding But what I haven't seen a lot of uh, in the media that I think we should be talking about and really applauding our administrators and educators is that we're stepping back and we're saying you know, these are children And these children need a lot of support and resources. And so how do we think differently about how we support and develop them? And I've seen a tremendous change over the last 18 months in this area. So that would be a big one um, that I would like to to highlight.
1: Oh, that's great. I hope that continues. Okay, we'll we'll wrap up with this final question. And it is a question that we ask executive candidates when we're working a search. We call it an off-resume item. Uh, that would be the case with you. But what we're looking for is, Jamie, something about you that we don't know. It could be an interest, a hobby, maybe a story that says something about you. What would be that quote-unquote off-resume item about Jamie Candy? Uh,
0: So I have a deep uh, rooted passion for design. Um, So I am, I guess I could use the word obsessed. I am obsessed with Exploring uh, architecture, both residential uh, and commercial, do a lot of research, and I love the art of design. So I spend a lot of time. My favorite thing to do is to go into, you know, look at a home that, you know, was built 100, 200 years ago, uh, and I can envision how to restore it to its glory. And I, and I just get so much, um, I get so passionate, and it's very rewarding for me to work. So frequently, my husband is probably sick of me doing this, but um, we've been through quite a few homes. And it isn't because we always want to move or want something different. It's because I I am particularly passionate about taking something uh, that maybe everybody else sees as sort of rundown or or not quite what it needs to be and really re-envisioning what it could look like and then working through that process. So that's a big thing for me is architecture and design. And I don't think that many people, besides, of course, my husband, who's now gone through four houses with me, uh, knows knows about me. So that would be one.
1: So are you a big HDTV junkie?
0: You know, if I had time to watch TV, the answer to that would be yes, and I'd have to say I would probably watch Chip and Joe. I think what is that called? Fixer Upper. Uh Fixer-upper, so if I have an opportunity. Wife, that yeah. With that. Yep. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a big fan of theirs. And when I'm on Delta Flight, they have Fixer Upper on demand. And so I am absolutely guilty of binge watching on Delta, the Fixer Upper episodes for sure.
1: My wife actually dragged me to their place in Waco with the silos. No way. That's how much she loves. Oh my gosh. Yeah.
0: You know, for me, that might be like going to Graceland or something to an Elvis fan. Or
1: Mecca, right. Jamie, hey. Mecca, that's right. Thanks very much. It's been great talking with you.
0: Todd, thank you. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll join us again for the next
1: Knowledge Leaders podcast.